This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to Literary Treks, our dedicated books and comic show here on the network. I am one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and with me as he is always, and I'm always excited to have him here, Dan Gunther. Dan, how's it going, man? Hey, Matthew, going okay. Uh, Happy to be here again as usual. You know, uh, I think that we have something special in store for everybody in our feature. Uh, David Mack is is here again to talk about uh, Seekers 3 long shot with us. And I'm always excited when we have the authors here. So that's going to be a lot of fun, I think. Well, it's always special when we have a new release to talk about. And it's, you know, made doubly so by having the author here to talk about it. You know, David Mack himself coming to talk about his book. It's always a special occasion here on Literary Treks. I mean, and the listeners really only just put up with us talking about <laughs> books by ourselves. You know, we we need the authors here. I mean, we got to get some legitimacy to this show. So, um, <laughs> but uh, we do have a little bit of news before we hit the interview. And uh, if you follow on Twitter, TNG underscore season eight, uh, you will... I've noticed plenty of funny tweets about humorous ideas for a season eight of Star Trek The Next Generation. And all of these have been collected now and into an entire book. Yeah, Matthew, I mean, there's so many season eight plots out there that uh, I I didn't know about. Uh, Apparently, Jordy and Data getting up to all kinds of hijinks. you know, losing spot somewhere in engineering and having to find him without the captain finding out. Uh, these were all episodes of the never aired eighth season of Star Trek The Next Generation. And uh, we're getting a book that's detailing all of these episodes. I think it's really fun. Uh, I've been following this on Twitter for quite a while, and it's nice that this is coming out. I think that this is really kind of the perfect thing to give, uh, you know, a friend who likes Star Trek, you know, and put this in the stocking for Christmas. I, I love when these kind of books come out. And um, just knowing the tweets, I mean, the ideas that they come up with are are really fun. So I'm excited that this is coming out for everyone and kind of getting it all collected into one place. 
And again, I think kind of the perfect uh, thing to give to that person in your life who loves Star Trek um, and really kind of put a smile on their face for the holidays. Definitely. I know I would love to see this under the tree or uh, stuffed <laughs> in my stocking. That's definitely. really what we're saying. Wink, wink, wink to everybody. Buy it for us. <laughs> you can't see us winking, but we're winking. So, yeah. Um, well, I am so excited to get to our interview, but before we do, just kind of want to remind you that uh, Literary Treks is part of the Trek FM network. We have 20 different shows on the network covering all the different aspects of Star Trek and beyond. We have the 602 Club where we do so many other things. Uh, so we hope that you'll join us on Trek FM. You can find us at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. We have our main website trek.fm and you can contact us there we've got trek.fm slash contact we'd love to hear from you about what you think about literary treks or things that we talk about on the show um, we're also on twitter at trek.fm facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm and we do have our listeners only discussion group where we hope you'll join us at the babel conference on facebook and just type babel into the search field on facebook or if you are at trek.fm, you can click discussion on the menu bar and that will take you right there. Dan, I'm so excited uh, to be able to get the opportunity to have the authors on Literary Trek. I mean, really, this is is what this show is is all about, is, is getting to talk about their works. And when we get to have them on, it's always a special treat. And I'm so excited tonight that we have... David Mack on to talk about Seekers 3. It's not The Seekers. It's not any of those. It's Seekers 3, <laughs> long shot. David Mack, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. It's great to be here. Yeah, David, always always amazing to have the authors on and especially, uh, you know, such a prolific Star Trek author as yourself. Thank you very much. It's very kind. It's also a real pleasure to come on a show where, you know, you guys clearly take the time, you prepare, you know the material we're talking about. Uh, I don't feel like, you know, I'm dealing with someone, you know, who's doing the standard, uh, you know, glad hand you about the about the new book, but they clearly haven't read the book. You guys, I always come on here knowing you guys have read the book. You have read the book. Well, right? thank you. Yes, yes. Actually, <laughs> I it was very <laughs> <laughs> Dan and I were talking about it last night and then we were I, I finished it up uh, earlier today and was writing down some notes about it and looking at my notes in my I love the ebooks because I can always write my notes in my ebook and then I, I have them all over the place so I can have them on my computer so putting all that together and this one just the seeker series itself um, and in the way that you guys I mean obviously these characters are continuations from what you did in Vanguard but this is very much the exploratory planet of the, of the week a race of the week and for you guys i kind of wanted to talk david about creation you, you know because the process of creation of this book of you created a race you created a problem that the crew has to fix um and and the challenge that they're faced with and with all of the hours of star trek and the hundreds of books take us through kind of the process for you of trying to create something that fans of, of Star Trek are going to be interested in reading and not feel like, okay, I've seen this before. Because that's tough, like I said, with all that we've seen. It is tough. But I think a misconception that a lot of people have about writing in a shared universe, such as Star Trek, 
is that they think because a certain number of stories have been done before, that this closes off possibilities, that this diminishes the total number of stories left to tell in a universe, when in fact it's the opposite. The more fully fleshed out a universe becomes, the more fully explored it is, the more questions it raises. The more we know about a universe, about its characters, about its situations, the more we can say, okay, yes, and what about this? It's a lot like improv. It's very much a yes and type of proposition. Yes, and now what? So there is, of course, a bit of a challenge in trying to avoid being repetitive. And it, I think in that regard, it helps that I have been a Star Trek fan my whole life. I grew up watching the original Star Trek series in reruns, in syndicated reruns, uh, in afternoon TV. I've seen them all over and over again. So I've sort of internalized those early episodes. And then, of course, I watched all of Next Gen, all of Deep Space Nine, all of Voyager, etc. So I've got this sort of encyclopedic understanding of where the franchise has gone, what stories and tropes have been done. That being said, there are certain stories that Star Trek goes back to over and over again, shamelessly, uh, just because they're good stories that are worth doing. And the planet that has done something in the name of science that has gotten out of hand and put them in peril is a longstanding trope, not just in Star Trek, but in science fiction in general. So I knew I wanted to do something along these lines. Back when Dayton Ward, Kevin Delmore, and I were putting together the original series Bible for Star Trek Seekers, one of the things we had to do as part of the pitch was put together a list of sample story ideas saying these are the kind of stories we might tell in the Star Trek Seekers setting. And some of them were as simple as a log line, a simple sentence that pitches the idea for a book. And this was one of those. The Sagittarius encounters a planet where a scientific experiment gone awry has shifted the laws of probability out of completely out of whack, creating the potential for both miracles and disasters. It's a pretty simple idea but within which it gives you the opportunity to explore a lot of different scenarios. Uh, oddly enough, this particular story concept was one that I've had kicking around in my idea folder or my idea scrapyard, as you might call it, uh, for a long time. It's one that I originally concocted back in, I think, the late 90s when I was working with uh, my then writing partner, John Ordover, who used to be an editor at Star Trek Books. And we were pitching stories to Star Trek Voyager every few months. This is one of many simple episodic concepts that we pitched to Voyager that Voyager did not buy. And it's always been one of those that uh, seemed to me like a great idea, one that would be a fun, light, fast, you know, uh, potentially perilous, uh, you know, uh, adventure. One that can start off sort of light and funny and almost comical and then very quickly turn on a dime and become deadly and really have you saying, whoa, you know, I thought we were on a lighthearted adventure and now suddenly we're, you know, we're about to bite the bullet. This is pretty heavy duty, which of course is bread and butter for Star Trek. Star Trek has always mm -hmm. loved to do stuff like this. And I think part of what also drew me to, you know, resurrect this particular story arc uh, or this story idea from my idea scrapyard were the years I spent writing on Star Trek Starfleet Corps of Engineers, uh, the ebook mm, mine, yeah. uh, which very much mm -hmm. was problem of the week, problem of the month, uh, 
find a tech problem, which is particularly bizarre in its origin, and then get involved and help some people and save some lives and then move on. Again, with a small crew on a small ship getting into quirky, weird adventures. Uh, and for, you know, just like for many other Star Trek writers, SCE, Star Trek SCE was sort of my minor league time with Star Trek. I went from, you know, kind of being a, a hopeful aspirant to getting the call to come and join the minor league franchise team, which was SCE doing the eBooks. And then when that worked, out well i got the big call to come up to the big leagues and do the paperbacks and i think this was again one of many ideas that if i had written more of the novellas for sce i might have explored it years ago uh, as an sce story if it had sold to television of course we'd all know it as an episode of voyager and i wouldn't have gone back to it i would have done something else um but it's just it's one of those things where for a writer a good idea is never wasted it simply gets filed away and then later on you see an opportunity and you say hey you know i bet this story would fit really <laughs> well here i could tailor this story like, like a story idea that's as simple and as broad as our crew visits a planet where the laws of probability are way out of whack that's a just a, a nifty little idea and how it plays out well you know if you play it out with the enterprise you get one story play it out with the deep space nine crew you get a different story play it out with sce and etc etc and it just so happened the idea and nothing like the idea had been done yet in star trek uh in books or on screen and it was still sitting there waiting to be explored and it was in my idea folder and i needed a book for seekers three and i thought this seems like a good light-hearted self-contained standalone adventure so i pulled it out of the idea folder and just started saying, all right, let's explore this and see how it plays out with the new crew. Well, I love, like, you really do take this idea to the nth degree. And like you said, it starts out very small. But, you know, as I read the book, I found myself kind of, you know, the bigger the situations got. And then by the time the meteors are coming to kill everybody on the planet and they, you, you, you bring in that great explanation that, you know, effect can precede cause and all that kind of stuff. I thought, oh man, this, you know, it could go anywhere. And then, you know, the, the stakes of the entire planet being destroyed kind of thing. Uh, I do have to admit, starting the story, I had no idea that that was where it was going to go. <laughs> That's the idea. Again, start small and then escalate. Um, and so that, that was fun. And also, you know, creating this culture of, you know, walking frogs, basically, uh, with, with three eyes on the tops of their heads and, and whatnot, but with a culture that's very familiar to us with a space station and they have restaurants and they have hotels and they have bars and they have highways and vehicles and capitals and politicians. And they see in a similar spectrum as us. It allowed me to just sort of have some fun creating a parallel world that we would recognize, even though it's a little bit alien. Well, one of the aspects of the story that I, I really enjoyed is, um, you know, there's this tendency for stories to have to have a huge villain who's bent on, you know, world domination or out for revenge to kill your protagonist and destroy everything in his path. And it was really refreshing to read a story kind of in the vein of uh, Star Trek Four or maybe even Star Trek The Motion Picture where, you know, there isn't some big bad evil alien who's trying to kill us all but instead it's you know really a man versus nature type story 
Um, what was your inspiration for, you know, this kind of story, the, the difficulties faced by the protagonists in the story? I think the reason I wanted to go in this kind of a direction with, you know, man versus nature, man versus science, let's say, is that by getting out of that sort of paradigm of having to have a villain, having to have someone with an evil motive, you didn't have to have such a violent uh, solution to the story that it wasn't the kind of crisis that can be solved through force of arms. It's the kind of a situation that has to be solved through the force of ideas, that we have to be smart about this. And I think that what appealed to me about that is that I felt like that got back to something that's truer about Star Trek than maybe some of the uh, more recent cinematic uh, outings have been, where movies rely on this sort of strong uh, villain to drive a narrative in many cases. I felt like a lot of great Star Trek episodes were based in things that didn't have necessarily a villain driving the story, but rather an existential threat. I mean, if you look at, like, let's say, an episode such as The Paradise Syndrome from the original series, where the threat is an asteroid coming to destroy this planet where peaceful, you know, uh, transplanted Native Americans, you know, Native Americans transplanted by the preservers, are living completely oblivious of what's coming to destroy them. And that's the threat. And uh, you could argue that there is a villain in the story of the guy who gets ticked off that James Kirk comes in and steals the girl that he had his eye on. Again, that's just one drama playing out in the scope of a broader narrative. That guy is not the villain. He's not the cause of the problem. He's not the reason the, the situation is coming to a critical, uh, critical mass he's just one more human drama playing out against that tapestry. So I was looking for a story like that, one where it wasn't going to be about having to face off against yet another person with a grudge, yet another person with a political agenda, yet another, uh, you know, conspiracy, yet another coup, uh, yet another military showdown. For once, I just wanted it to be something as simple as good people have a problem that occurred not out of malice, but simply because our reach exceeded our grasp and now we're in trouble and our heroes just happen to be, uh, you know, either by fate or by coincidence in the right place at the right time to say, we can step in, we're going to help, we're not going to let you go. Don't worry, we're here, we're going to do what we can and we're not going to give up, we're in this. And I think that that felt to me like a very Star Trek way to approach a story. What was so interesting, too, I felt like is the way that you were able to incorporate one of Star Trek's biggest things, which was the prime directive. And yet you barely mentioned that. But the whole story is kind of a prime directive story of this is why we don't give technology to aliens who aren't ready for it. This is why they can't have nice things is because they do this with it because they're not ready. They haven't earned that technology yet and I, I just loved the way that this is such a beautiful picture of of the prime directive and why it's in place without us being the with, guys who broke it exactly and of course it wasn't even really broken it's that this alien spacecraft landed i'm sorry crashed and it, spoiler alert <laughs> uh basically at some point in this planet's history an alien spacecraft of unknown origin crashed and they raided its technology. And they've spent the last century reverse engineering this, uh, this stuff, you know, taking it apart, figuring out what makes it tick. Uh, 
and trying to reverse engineer it for their own purposes, not realizing, of course, that uh, maybe this isn't the greatest idea and that maybe they're taking steps they're not ready to take. And as a result, they set themselves on a path to destruction from which our heroes must pull them back. And of course, our heroes at the outset of the story are concerned about the Prime Directive. They're even thinking, is there some way we can investigate and look into what's going on, but without tampering with this culture, without contaminating this culture unnecessarily, with even just the simple knowledge that we exist and are here. And then the moment they realize they've, A, been spotted, B, recognized as alien, and C, are being directly hailed and asked for help. The moment they have received an unambiguous call for help that is clearly being directed at them, Prime Directive no longer applies. And they even say it in the story. Well, so much for Prime Directive. That's out the window. (laughs) And this goes back to the TNG episode, Pen Pals, where they were all concerned about Prime Directive violation of data, maybe having contact with uh, Sarjenka on this planet, right up to the point where they received the transmission where Sarjenka is transmitting what can only be interpreted as a mayday. She is in danger. She is in trouble. She's calling for help and she's calling to data. At that point, they're able to interpret the law to say, well, that's a pretty unambiguous mayday. That's an SOS. Once you've received an SOS, you're not interfering. You are now an invited participant. Your help is solicited. You are not interfering. And that's pretty much black letter Federation law. So I was able to take that and say, all right, so now they are asking for help. And of course, nobody thinks to ask, well, how did these people even know to ask us for help? Uh, You know, they figure out, of course, you know, they detected us. They have passive sensors on the other sides of their moons. They saw us coming on what we thought was a stealth trajectory. We underestimated them, yada, yada, yada. But at no point does anyone ask themselves, why did they have passive sensors on the dark sides of their moons? Why would you put those there? Why would you have them? That question doesn't come up because there's too many other emergent things going on. Well, the reason they have them is because this alien ship 100 years ago or whatever crashed on their planet and as such made them aware of extraterrestrial visitors. And so they set up this detection network. That's how and why they spot us. It's just it's one of those things where in the moment you don't think about it. But once you realize what the history is for these people and how they came to acquire the technology they have, suddenly that passive detective network on the other sides of their moons makes perfect sense. Mm, yeah. Well, <laughs> I loved that. I felt like the lesson was always read the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and do not engage the improbability <laughs> drive if you don't know how it works. Precisely. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely uh, a little hint of that in there. Uh, obviously, there was the intentional nod to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy with the improbability drive. I got one message from somebody on Twitter asking me if any whales were harmed in the writing of Long Shot. Uh, <laughs> I, I assured him that none were, as far as I knew. And uh, of course, you know, like most of my books, there are allusions and references to many other things within the text. Eagle-eyed readers will spot references to Rush because there's always a reference to Rush somewhere. Uh, and of course, uh, at least one person on Twitter has thanked me for the um, call out to Animal House <laughs> because nice. Dayton Ward nice. and I always like to try and sneak in references to Animal House wherever we possibly can. So 
Yeah, I caught, um, I felt like there was some bits of uh, Interstellar and Gravity and, of course, Back to the Future in there as Definitely well. Gravity. I, I saw Gravity and the destruction of the space station, I think, owes a, a debt of homage to, to Gravity. Oddly enough, I've not seen Interstellar. Okay, oh, wow. okay. The, there's the scene Ran where they're trying to like, to see it. yeah, they're they're using the, the the ship to try and dock and save these people, and it was very reminiscent of a docking scene in Interstellar. Which and I, I was like, see. oh, yeah, that's funny. Well, I mean, the, 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 there's only so many ideas, you know. <laughs> I mean, that actually goes back to, uh, I think I probably was inspired on that one by the movie 2010. Okay, I think there's yeah. something similar in 2010. And if not in 2010, I'm sure there was some other movie around that time which had something similar to that. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, so there was uh, there, there was that, but always little homages, little mm-hmm. references. Well, a lot of people caught this one, but it was still my absolute favorite, was the uh, the thanks Obama <laughs> reference <laughs> that, 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 that was perfect. <laughs> that was good. Well, and it was interesting, too, because along with this whole idea of, of, you know, the Prime Directive, and this is why we don't give aliens technology, it was interesting to kind of watch the other side of that with the aliens taking this technology and one of the reasons they're pushing is this whole scientific race that they have so they're kind of cutting corners with things they don't necessarily completely understand yet because it's it's a form of um of competition you know to see who can earn the money for creating you know self-sustaining power basically and i you know, it's a, it's a it's a great as Trek always does when it's at its best is is a good cautionary tale that scientific research needs to be done carefully and needs to be separated so we, from a profit motive. Yeah, I you know, one, a classic example of this is my former writing partner from the '90s, John Ordover, would ca- always criticize you know efforts to try and come up with. Uh, deep space exploration ideas and deep space probes and the notion of a manned mission to Mars, whatever. He would always say, well, where's the profit? You know, how do we get our money back? Where's the return on investment? And of course, this is a blind to the fact that NASA research for things like the moon landing yielded all kinds of new products that we wouldn't have had otherwise. I mean, they invented tons of consumer products uh, as an offshoot of the research they did to make that mission work. Star B, Trek wouldn't have Velcro. Precisely, Velcro. B, uh, it also ignores the fact that some things need to be separated from the profit motive. It's not enough to say, well, you know, what's on X planet that makes it worth going there? At some point, you have to be able to think beyond the dollars and cents of what does it cost to get there and be able to say, what is the benefit to the human race? to go there. And if the benefit is by getting to other planets, by learning how to create colony ships that can self-sustain and get 5,000, 10,000 people alive, you know, in let's say 150 years to a habitable uh, planet in another solar system where they can set up a new bastion of humanity and then continue to rebuild and, and extend forward. What you're getting is the survival of the human race. You're getting the fact that the entire evolutionary uh, race that we've run so far has not been in vain. Uh, if we don't get off this planet, sooner or later, everything we are, everything we've done, everything we represent gets erased. And if we don't get our together and figure out how to, A, stop screwing up planets, 
and B, how to get off planets, we're going to die on this planet. And that's what I loved. Even though I didn't see Interstellar, I loved its tagline. Mankind was born on Earth. It was not meant to die here. I I think you'll like the movie. I just I need to find time to see it. You get a chance to, to watch it. Yeah. I was going to get time to see it. It's excellent. So, um it, it was in fact I we uh we talked about it on the 602 club and it turned out to be it's one of the most downloaded episodes we have <laughs> and we talked for like over 2 hours about it and you could still talk more about it because it's so mind-bending. So yeah, I I completely I'm with you. I I really get disappointed when um we we don't think about the future and we only think about the present yeah. and it's such a detriment when that happens. And I've tried to work stuff like that into a lot of my Trek books. I mean, not just like for instance, it, it comes into play in Seekers three in the form of you've got these two competing government initiatives and they're both basically competing over something as stupid and as short sighted as continued funding. Uh, you see it for instance, in my, uh, uh, I think my cold equations books and silent weapons, when they have to go to the Orion homeworld and you've got, you know, basically the libertarian ethos run amok where you've got some people living in squalor, living in poverty. And then you've got the ultra rich living a stone's throw away and nobody's lifting a hand to do anything about this incredible inequity and people from the Federation, which is essentially a socialist democratic utopia, look at this and say, what is wrong with you people? How do you look at this and let it continue? How do you look at this every day and say, yes, this is a status quo that I can allow to persist? How do you not just get up one day and say, we have the ability to fix this. Why don't we fix this? And so it's one of those things where those sorts of ideas, which uh, you know, Star Trek has been sort of helping me get my brain around for pretty much my entire life, come back into the work where the worldview that Star Trek has shown to me, I now reflect back to Star Trek. Well, another thing I kind of wanted to talk about with this novel uh, that I just absolutely loved was kind of the uh, interaction of the characters. Uh, I remember reading kind of the earlier Seekers novels and Dastin, for example, was kind of one character that I was like, I don't know if I'm going to really like this guy. Um <laughs> I can honestly say reading this novel, there's not a single character in here that I didn't like. I thought they all, to me, the interaction among them all was really what made the novel. Uh, Dastin and Thoreau. Uh, I hope I'm saying, Terrio, thank you. I was I was curious about that. It is French, you see. Terrio. Ah, okay. It's great because we talked with you and I was able to do that in my head the whole time. I was like, oh, I know that said because David told me. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Terrio. Terrio. Awesome. Okay. Little um, things to pick up as a New Englander and as a someone, I, I'm half French myself. So uh, uh, things like that. Just I grew up around people with basically French names, Irish names, and Polish names. See, I, I'm Canadian, so I have no excuse for not knowing that, but whoops. <laughs> oh, you are a bad, bad Canadian, sir. Yeah, afraid you so. You are one bad Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> what did we learn today on Literary Tracks? Dan is a bad Canadian. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> no maple syrup for you. One here. Oh, that's, that's practically a crime up here. <laughs> hey, at least I didn't take away your poutine. Oh, God, heaven forbid. <laughs> oh, oh, that, I think your constitutional, your, 
I'm pretty sure there's like a, something in the Canadian Charter of Rights or something that guarantees you poutine. So I'm not <laughs> I think it's in there away. somewhere. Yeah. It's in there somewhere. <laughs> I'm sure despite all of, you know, Prime Minister Harper's uh, attempts to get rid of it, I'm sure it's still there. <laughs> yeah. When we hope anyway. You hope. Um, <laughs> if he, I swear to God, if he takes away your poutine, that man is looking at a rebellion. <laughs> That would be this far and no farther. (laughs) The peasants are revolting. I know they're revolting. What are you trying to tell me? I'm saying, sir, they're coming for you. They want your head. What now? The poutine, sir. You shouldn't have taken the poutine. (laughs) (laughs) Then one day they came for our poutine. And And we said, here, I know further. (laughs) Perfect. Yes, we got the British French I'm pretty sure Captain, I've had enough wine. Just let it go. <laughs> okay, and I'm out of wine now, so <laughs> the interview can only go downhill from here. Perfect. Um <laughs> leaving it all in. Leaving it all in. Well, we might as well. I mean that that's value uh, add right there. That is it oh, is. I love it. It's awesome. Yeah. Dan, what were you going to ask him about uh, Terrio and? Yeah, uh, you had a question yeah, about. Well, you're talking right, about- there was a, a there was a book or something. I think. Anyway, I <laughs> I wrote a book. Is that what I do when I'm drinking? No, yeah, yeah, that's Jeez. what you do when you're drinking. <laughs> that's why they keep sending me to conventions. I thought I was a comedian. Nobody tells me anything. Yeah, so for me, the interaction among the characters was really what made the book. Uh, Dastin and Therio, and uh, also the interactions, I thought, between Terrell and Torvin were just really great in this novel. Yeah, Torvin is a fun character to write. I mean, I think part of it helps uh, that helps me is that I've got them all cast in my head. Like, I have actors playing them all in my head. Like, I'm seeing Allison Hannigan playing Terrio. I'm seeing Ryan oh, Reynolds. Oh, I'm in love. Yeah, I'm, I'm in love. I've got Ryan Reynolds in my head playing Dastin. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> Raina Baccarin is Terrell. Uh, of course, you've got uh, Jack Black as the Master Chief. I don't know if oh, you guys gosh, ever watched uh, awesome. an HBO show called Deadwood. You ever watched Deadwood? I haven't I've seen it, seen but a I, little I know bit a lot of it. There's a kind of a big guy uh, who, uh, his name is W. Earl Brown. He played the right-hand guy to Swearingen. And I picture him uh, as Salago Thrax. And then I've got Allison Mack in my head as, uh, you know, the, the other engineer, Karen K. Howe. Oh, I uh, love Allison Mack. Right. Portia de Rossi, of course, uh, is in my head as Dr. Babbitts. Uh, there's oh, a Vietnamese actor nice. named uh, Dustin <laughs> Wen, who I picture as uh, Wen Tham Bao. Uh, and then, of course, you got your aliens galore and whatnot. So it helps that I have these actors in my head to bring these characters to life. And then they've got their funny little quirks and funny little conflicts. Uh, you know, you've got the engineers sunning themselves on top of the deck. You've got uh, the germaphobe uh, doctor, you know, making them use sunscreen. You have the golfing captain using one of the engineers as his caddy. And, you know, having just the fact that you've got a, a crewman first class who is getting away with cracking little sarcastic jokes behind the back of his commanding officer and is not being brought up on charges, not being put in. Well, they don't have a brig, but I guess for them, the brig would be getting locked in the mess hall, um, which, you know, they've also got their own little nicknames for pre sick bay, uh, you know, and, and whatnot. Um, 
it, it is a different kind of crew. It's basically they're modeled on the sort of informal uh, relationships you'd see on a PT boat as opposed to yeah, a capital yeah. ship. You know, these are the this, these are the guys who, you know, in naval parlance, these are the guys who are on a PT boat who you send up the river. They're not quite right in the head. These are not going to be guys who would function on a capital ship. You know, you, you wouldn't want these guys to have like, you know, let's say command of the nuclear missiles. Uh, you, you wouldn't want these guys in command of an Arleigh Brute, you know, an Arleigh Burke uh, cruise missile, you know, uh, ship or whatever. But the notion is you've got this quirky little band of misfits and they get along and they understand each other and they wear their little matching jumpsuits and nobody wears rank insignia. And it's all fun and games right Until up to the point where hurt. fire begins to fall out of the sky. And with the, at that point, when the captain starts giving orders, things get done. Mm-hmm. You know, when Terrio lays down the law and says, this is the way it's got to be, get it done, get the ship in there do this everybody snaps into action everybody gets it done and suddenly they go from being merry pranksters to a team of well-oiled professionals who you realize each one of them is capable of doing the jobs of three or four other people you'd normally have on any other starfleet ship and you begin to realize these aren't the dregs of starfleet these aren't the cast-offs to screw up so you put on the pt boat because you can't trust them on a capital ship these are the crazy triple quadruple skilled officers non-coms and just polymaths who are so overqualified for everything else that working on a scout ship where everybody has to be able to do the work of four people is the only good assignment for them and you begin to realize these aren't the clowns these aren't the screw-ups these are the prodigies i was wondering for you you know this this crew seems, you know, I, we have gotten the opportunity to talk to you for a while now, and I, I feel like this crew has so much of you in it. And I was just kind of wondering, what are some of the things ab- about the crew and um, just maybe personal experiences that have kind of informed who these people are that you've kind of worked into them? Uh, as a, Because I just, I when I read the seekers books and i read these characters i feel like this is the david mack that we've gotten to know over the last couple of years on literary treks well i think pharaoh daston is definitely my uh smart alec side he, he's my quipster he's my smart alec he's the guy who's got the ready joke the smart ass remark the pun uh that everybody's gonna groan at that's pharaoh daston representing that side of my personality and then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got Crewman Torvin, you know, a small guy, bald head, big funny ears, uh, bottom of the rank totem pole, always feels like the last guy to learn anything. Uh, no luck with the ladies, can't seem to figure out social graces to save his life. But at heart, he's a good kid and he's good at what he does. And he works hard and he's smart and he's devoted and he's brave. Uh, so I think in a lot of respect, you know, that's the, you know, reflection of the younger me, you know, the, uh, the me who was a boy scout, but who could not figure out how to talk to girls in college. Um, you know, the, the quintessential nerd, uh, I mean, like, like most nerds, like most geeks, you know, I, I had my phases younger in life before I got my head together. And I think Torben reflects that. And K. Howe, I think reflects, you know, the aspects of me that think of life as an outsider, 
as someone who has always gotten used to being on the outside and on those rare occasions when you find yourself on the inside, you wonder, how the hell did I get here? Mag Mike Madman Ilucci, the master chief, the chief engineer, he is definitely me as the drunkard at a con. He's me in the hotel bar. <laughs> he's me. So he's you at shore leave. He, he's me at shore leave when the editors are buying the drinks. That's me. That's Mike Madman Ilucci. Salago Threx, the guy who can make the inappropriate joke, the big, hairy, fuzzy bastard uh, who's maybe got less than perfect uh, social graces who can be counted on to belch or pass gas, but also the guy who can be counted on to throw himself in harm's way. Well, there's a little bit of me there, too. I mean, there's a little bit of, I think, every author in all of their characters. Um, with Terrio, Terrio sort of represents the responsible side of me. Um, you know, the, the me that wants to, you know, look ahead, to be forethinking, to be respected, but also doesn't feel entirely respected all the time. Maybe less so, you know, less of me in like a, a, an insectoid character like Nisk or a reptilian character like Raska, uh, who's a character who actually goes back to my first ever paperback. He's actually in there as an homage to the first paperback Star Trek novels I wrote, A Time to Kill and A Time to Heal. Uh, which actually represent his tragic end in combat. Um, so we know he's going to live through the Seekers series. Uh, but he's there basically sort of just as an homage to my early work. He's there as a, in a way to link Seekers to the rest of my work as a Star Trek writer. Mm -hmm. And then when you've got a character like Terrell, who maybe sometimes feels more at home with animals than she does with people, well, there are definitely days when I feel like that. And it's no mistake that the creature who has her so completely and utterly fascinated at the beginning of the book in chapter two, if you read it really closely, it's pretty clear she's she's gazing longingly at a troop of bunnies. So uh, that's not a mistake. She's you know she represents the side of me that likes my cats, likes my bunnies, wants to have a beagle. Uh, you know, would almost rather spend time interacting with uh, animals because they're morally unambiguous. Uh, than with people. So I think that aspect of my personality comes through in Terrell. Uh, and then watching all of these different conflicting or seemingly conflicting personalities, A, come into conflict at times, and then B, begin to mesh and merge and cooperate and then eventually form a synergistic whole. I suppose you could argue that that you know, is uh, a metaphor for taking the different elements of one's own personality, in my case, my personality, and channeling it toward uh you know accomplishing goals like let's say writing novels what i loved was that storyline with terrell and you know being somebody who has gotten to the point where she doesn't believe kind in love. of yeah and she's put herself in this kind of seclusion and being apart from the community and i kind of liked her coming out of her shell and kind of seeing that you have to live life and and life being lived means living in community even though it's really messy yeah and you know sure <laughs> and frustrating sure maybe that's the road to getting hurt but it's also the road to finding something better um you know there's there's no gain without risk and i think that you know terrell is coming from a point where she's been burned she's risk averse and she's got to find the courage to break out of the shell and take chances again on just even just on trusting other people in bonds of friendship, she's probably not ready yet for 
bonds of romance. That's probably still way, way out uh, of her uh, comfort zone at this point. But I think she needs to find her way back to connecting with other people in a real uh, and emotionally honest sense. And I think she needs to find her way back to being a friend and part of a team. And I think that part of what she's dealing with here in book three, particularly at the point where she's ready to move on from the accident scene after the debris falls from orbit and wrecks the other cars in the highway. And the captain has to remind her there are wounded civilians in some of these vehicles. We're going to render emergency medical aid before mm-hmm. we move on. Yes, we have a mission. Yes, we're on a timetable, but it's not so critical that we can't render emergency medical aid before we leave the scene. And she finds herself wondering, when did I become so callous? When did I stop learning to value sentient life? When did I lose all empathy? Can I get it back? Is it too late for me? The fact that she's able to ask the question is a good sign that it's not. But it is a sign that she has become divorced from her feelings, from a core of empathy, uh, and that she does have work to do on herself. And it's in the interaction she has with Torvin that she begins to take those first steps back toward reclaiming an emotional side of her life that she has shut out. And she's a character who I wanted to spend a little bit more time with, and I wanted to find something about her that felt real and honest and true for book three, because we didn't really have a lot of time in the span of book one and two to get to know her. And part of my goal with book three was to give every character a little bit of time so that readers could really feel like this time we got a chance to know everybody. They're more than just names. We begin to realize a little bit of what makes every one of these 14 people tick as individuals and what makes all of them together click as a team. I just, I love that whole idea um, because I I think that, I was thinking about the world that we live in and, you know, people are supposedly more connected than ever. And yet we kind of feel so many times so much more secluded than ever. We have more interaction, but that doesn't, interaction does not imply connection. Mm -hmm. Interaction can basically mean we are, you know, it's, it would be the same as you have more FaceTime with people, but you don't really have intimacy with people. FaceTime Mm -hmm. and intimacy are not the same things. And I think that it's possible to have plenty of opportunities to interact with large numbers of people online through a depersonalized virtual medium such as Facebook or Twitter, uh, which lacks tone uh, and which lacks a real sense of human warmth. And even when you get a feeling of there are relationships that are transcending those electronic medium or, or media, I think very often what it really is implying is that there's a relationship that occurs in real, in, in real space, you know, a real sort of face-to-face bond that has occurred between human beings, and we're simply seeing it reflected online, I think it's less common to find that degree of genuine intimacy and warmth occurring between people who only have ever met and have only ever interacted through virtual media. I, I think it's not impossible. I certainly don't want to discount the bonds of connection that have occurred. I, I have at least once in my past, uh, you know, and embarked on like a, a pen pal, an email pen pal relationship with uh, a woman who I basically, we, we met through like a, a fan fiction discussion board about Buffy the Vampire Slayer back in the mid nineties. 
And my first post on the board was this sort of long rambling thing as, you know, I didn't even realize I was born to be a tie-in writer, but this should have been my first clue. <laughs> I was speculating on how it could be that a vampire, which supposedly had no heartbeat, no pulse, and no circulation, could achieve an erection when an erection depends upon having specifically pulse, blood pressure, the ability for you know certain capillaries and passages to close, and et cetera, et cetera. They're all this medical jargon. And I had this whole lengthy thing about that, and then about the nature of vampire physiology and what you know the lore, uh, both in history and on the show, said about vampires and yada 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 yada. And it was apparently enough that it compelled this woman named Judy from Canada to drop me an email saying some mighty fine posting there. And you know we got to talking and we bonded over our love of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel and this and that and the other thing. And we became regular email correspondents for years. And it finally started to fall off right around the time I started to become a published author. Not because I wasn't trying to stay in touch, but because I think she had some sort of, you know, phobia about, you know, A, she never wanted to exchange photos. She only ever wanted the exchange of ideas and, and whatnot, virtual communication. And the moment at which, you know, I added my author photo to my website and I began to have books published with my names on them, my name on them, and it became like a thing. Suddenly, I think it just reached a point where she couldn't continue. And I have a feeling where if we had been friends in real life, rather than just virtual friends, maybe that would not have happened. Mm -hmm. Whereas I find that, you know, the people I interact with most warmly on, let's say, Twitter or Facebook, uh, et cetera, are t tend to be the people who I know in real life and who are connected to me emotionally in real life. And it's sometimes very hard to replicate that bond with people who you haven't met face to face. It's almost like the the electronic barrier or the the device you're communicating to is an actual real physical barrier to that kind of really close relationship, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, how much of a bond can you feel with someone if you've never been able to so much as shake their hand? Mm -hmm. You know, if you can send them, you know, a heartfelt consoling message via Facebook or email or whatever when they're, you know, going through a tough time. But is that the same thing as the friend who can sit there with them silently, pour them a drink, have a smoke with them, you know, sit on the stoop, not have to say a damn word, throw an arm over their shoulder, you know, shake the, you know, you know give them a pat on the back. You don't have to say a damn word when you're in a situation like that because you're physically there. You, you, you hear the breath of the other person. You feel the warmth. You, you feel the touch of their hand on their shoulder, and you know that that's real and that they're really there. And for some reason, you know, because we are human, because we are consciousness trapped in meat, there is something about that physicality, that presence, that just I don't think that virtual interactions can ever really take the place of that. Just my opinion. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you know, a hundred years from now, such virtual communications will be so advanced that they'll be able to simulate that experience through telepresence, through you know, avatars. Who knows? And maybe that whole equation will change. But I think right now, given the limitations of the technology we deal with right now, I think it's very hard for virtual relationships to have that same degree of warmth and intimacy. That reminds me of. Just finished Ready Player One not too long ago, and that whole idea of, mm -hmm. uh, and and by the end of the book, spoiler alert for anybody mm -hmm. who has not read Ready Player One, uh, just the the whole idea that 
this virtual world that you can be whoever you want to be and all of this stuff mm-hmm. it was the the reality of the people at the end that was more important and and uh yeah I, man you're making me miss all my friends back in in dallas uh just because i do i i miss that immediacy of, of being able to call somebody up and, and go hang out and have a drink and sit out you know on the porch and, and smoke a cigar and 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 maybe not even say anything maybe just sit there um and it is that is the joy of life and and i loved that you put that in here with this story of somebody kind of having that emotional reawakening you know of, of what it really means to live a well-lived life and not just you know kind of pretend like you're you're there um, but to be a part of it mm-hmm. the messy crazy awesome fracked up parts of life yeah, it's, it's, I, I it's wish awesome. I could write three times faster than I do because I would love to get back to Terrell's story and you know she's a character now where now that I've really had a chance to try and bring her to life and realize, you know, what it is that's driving her, where her emotional wounds are. Now she's a character who I think needs more time to, you know, to, to be explored. She needs to be, you know, she needs time on the stage to be who she is. Unfortunately, I have no idea when I'm going to get back to writing Star Trek Seekers. I have the Star Trek uh, 50th anniversary book that I'm supposed to start writing, well, which I was supposed to start writing probably about a week ago, but I just finished my uh, original, my first uh, book for a trilogy for tour. So I'm probably going to start writing the 50th anniversary book for Star Trek tomorrow. And that'll be out probably about a year from now. But after that, I have no idea when I'm going to get back to track. I have a section 31 story arc I want to get back to. I have Star Trek seekers that I'd like to get back to, but I also have two books left on my contract for tour, uh, which are going to take up most of my year uh, next year in terms of writing time just because there is so much research and development and prep that goes into an original novel as opposed to a Star Trek novel where I already know the universe, the backstory, the characters, the technology. With an original, you know, I have to pull everything out of thin air and I have to sort of synthesize everything from my own uh, fictional universe. So it takes more time to get it together and then, and then to execute it uh, chapter by chapter, line by line. So I honestly don't know when I'm getting back to Seekers. And I wish I could get back to it sooner because Tara really needs to have her story looked at some more. Well, David, that is a is a perfect segue to, to tell everybody, you know, what is coming out next for you and what you're working on and, and what do you want to have people be thinking about that's coming out uh, by you uh, to be looking for, uh, you know, throughout the end of this year and, and into next year and you know, if you've got any plans after that, too. What a fantastic question. <laughs> Obviously. I will Sunday, have- Sunday, Sunday. You'll pay for the whole seat. You'll only need the edge. Anyway. Um, <laughs> obviously, I want people to pick up Star Trek Seekers number three, which is out now from uh, Simon and Schuster. Coming on September 8th of this year from Tor Forge Books is my next tie-in novel. That's 24 Rogue. And that's a story about Jack Bauer. It's set between the end of season eight when he had to go on the run as a fugitive, as he so often has done before, and the beginning of the 12-episode miniseries from last year, Live Another Day, when after four years, he came out of hiding for the adventure in England. Uh, My story is set roughly in the middle of that time period, 
and it involves him, A, trying to infiltrate the organization of an arms dealer named Carl Rask, who we saw in Live Another Day. Uh, and as he's trying to do so by posing as a member of the crew aboard a ship that Rask uses to shift weapons and ordnance, etc., the ship is attacked and boarded by pirates off the coast of Somalia. And Jack has to figure out how these guys are so well-armed and so well-informed, what they're looking for. And when they get away with it, he has to chase them ashore and continue the fight on the ground in Somalia, uh, at first by himself and then afterwards uh, with an unexpected ally. And that's just a fun, classic-style 24-action-adventure uh, thriller Lots of gunfire, lots of bloodshed, lots of explosions. Everything you've come to expect of Jack Bauer, including classic lines like, damn it, we're running out of time. And uh, who are you working for? <laughs> and that sort of thing. So, Who does number two work for? Right, no, I am number six. Anyway, no. That's Is there anybody going to be opening up any more sockets for him? <laughs> uh, no, because he's completely cut off from CTU. Although he, uh, like I said, does gain an unexpected ally, but I don't want to spoil anything. In any mm, event... Very cool for, teaser. <laughs> for anybody who is listening to the show who is a fan of 24, uh, I think you guys are really going to love 24 Rogue. It is coming out September 8th from Tor slash Forge Books. And uh, I had a lot of fun writing it, and I think it's going to be a, a heck of a thrill ride. Let's see. Coming out next year, uh, around this time next year, will be my next book. So it's going to be kind of a long drought after 24 Rogue. <laughs> is uh, Star Trek Legacies is the name of the trilogy, uh, Legacies. I'm writing book two. The first book by Greg Cox is called Captain to Captain. My book, the second one, is called Best Defense. And the third book by Dayton Ward and Kevin Dilmore is called Purgatory's Key. And I can't tell you too much about it. All we can say is that it is about James Kirk, the crew of the Enterprise. It's a five-year mission story set during the time of the classic Star Trek we all know and love from the 1960s. And uh, it's an homage to everything that we love about Star Trek that we think is good and true and noble and beautiful about Star Trek uh, in trilogy form. And the three books will be coming out back-to-back next year in July, August, and September of 2016, just in time for the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, which is next year. After that, I'm not entirely sure yet of the release date. Originally, it was going to be next fall. Now it looks like it's going to be winter, first quarter of 2017. I just finished writing a novel titled The Midnight Front, which is part of a series which is tentatively titled Dark Arts. And it's essentially a story of uh, behind the scenes of real history, there is a whole world of magic and sorcery that, sorcery that we don't know about. The first book, The Midnight Front, is set during World War II. And the notion is that Hitler had not only his occultists and astrologers, he also had a team of black magicians working in the style of Renaissance-era ceremonial magic. So because he had his black magicians the Allies had to have theirs as well. And our story follows our hero, who is a young man, an American studying at Oxford, who gets pulled into this group, the Midnight Front, which is a top-secret uh, Allied magical warfare unit. And he basically goes through uh, World War II as part of this top-secret group, 
and gets into shenanigans and adventures and romance and death and destruction and betrayal and all the stuff you love from these sorts of big epic war stories. And it's a monster of a book, the longest single novel I've ever written. I just turned it in last night to my editor, sent it to my agent, my beta readers. Uh, it'll either be my masterpiece or it'll be a complete steaming turd. Uh, I don't know which. Um, <laughs> time will tell. Hopefully everyone will buy it either way because everybody loves a train wreck. Um, <laughs> but in theory, it's supposed to be the start of a new series. Uh, with book two, The Iron Circle is uh, going to be set a number of years later in 1953 during the era of the McCarthy hearings, the end of the Korean War, the fall of the uh, democratically elected government in Iran, the rise of Israel in the Middle East, the rebuilding of Europe, et cetera, et cetera. And then the third book, The Shadow Commission, is supposed to be set around November 1963, immediately following the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And it's a book about the rise of the military-industrial complex and the beginning of a nascent uh, movement of fascism behind the scenes, uh, creating a shadow government within the United States. So that's the big project that I'm going to be working on through most of 2016, uh, which will hopefully be out uh, all three books sometime in 2017. And uh, when that's done, hopefully I will be in such fantastic demand that I'll be commanding such salaries that I'll only be writing original novels, but um, more likely I'll be returning to Star Trek at some point uh, in 2017 for titles to be released in 2018. And we will talk more about those then. So not a lot of Trek coming from you in the next little while, but you know, lots of David Mack though. So we're really excited about that. And I personally am really excited to read uh, The Midnight Front for sure. I, I hope everybody is. I mean, it's a work that I've been toiling on for years in one form or another, at least in the conceptual stage. And it's uh, a story that if anybody happened to have been a fan of my first original novel, The Calling, which was released back in 2009, Although The Calling was set in modern-day New York City uh, and had a very different tone and very different style, let's just say an eagle-eyed reader might be able to pull out some clues that suggest The Calling transpires in the same fictional universe as the Dark Arts trilogy. I'm not saying for sure that they do. I'm just saying you <laughs> might be able to find sufficient evidence <laughs> to make a compelling argument. <laughs> Very cool. I'm just saying. A little bit. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> if anybody does want to connect with you on the ether known as the ones and the zeros out the there, the interwebs, yeah, where can they find you, David? They can always find me at davidmack.pro. That's davidmack, M-A-C-K, dot P-R-O. And from there, you will find links to my Facebook author page, which is facebook.com slash the David Mack. You can also find me at Twitter at David Allen Mack. That's David Allen, A-L-A-N-M-A-C-K. And my you'll you'll know it's me because my Facebook author page and my Twitter page are both verified. So if it ain't verified, it ain't me. So make sure you check for that little blue check mark on both those pages. Uh, but if you're ever in doubt, just go to davidmack.pro because that's my official website and you can just follow the links from there. 
Well, David, thank you so much for giving us your time. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, it has been a blast um, getting to talk to you tonight. We've, it's and, been a great conversation. You guys have asked some really just fantastic questions. I uh, don't think anybody has ever asked me before, like what the characters of Seekers, you know, represent in terms of, you know, how I invest myself into each of the characters. Nobody's ever asked that before. It's a great question. Mm. Well, I'm I'm glad that um, you were okay with answering it because I know that mm. sometimes you know when you talk about the the personality of a, a person's work, mm -hmm. you know that's a very private question and not every author Wants would necessarily always yeah. want it. Yeah, and so I appreciate you being so open and candid about that because you know that's the kind of thing that um, really makes a work come alive. And when you know that an author and you can tell an author is pouring themselves into that book. And that's one of those things. And we only know each other over these interwebs. Sure. But, sure. Uh, well, if you're looking for more of that, I'm curious, have either of you gentlemen uh, previously read my first ever Star Trek novel, which I did for Star Trek SCE? Have you read Wildfire? I have not. I haven't gotten into that series yet. Here's oh, I haven't gotten there yet. Like Just to. about there. <laughs> All right. Here, here would be a fun exercise. If at some point you guys get around to reading that, uh, you want to talk about autobiographical material informing the writing of a novel. There is so much of me uh, in that. And that was my, my first ever novel. And I was writing it at a time uh, in the wake of 9-11 after I had stood in the middle of Sixth Avenue and watched the towers fall. And uh, at the time I was writing the novel was also when I started dating the woman who later became my wife. And so there were a lot of questions going on in my head as I wrote that book. Uh, questions like, you know, what if the moment you finally fall in love is the moment you're asked to die? And there was just so much of my history, so much of my personal life, uh, tragedies, childhood, uh, current situations, and it all got poured into that book. You ever want to have a talk about what it means for a writer to pour himself into a single work? Go read Wildfire, and then we'll schedule another one of these chats. Mm. Well, now we're going to have to do wow, that. Wow, absolutely. That's <laughs> getting added to the list immediately. <laughs> yeah. Well, we are uh, actually, we have been slowly on the show wrapping up well, going through the, the Deep Space Nine relaunch, and we are just about to finish the worlds of Deep Space Nine. You're about to books. embark on on Warpath, and aren't then you? Warpath, yeah. Oof. So Warpath, that's a book that I wrote at a time when I was grappling with some pretty serious depression issues. And mm -hmm. uh, actually, I think I was in the middle of writing that book, and I had uh, what could be described generously as a uh, benign psychological break. Mm. and uh somebody who uh, a friend of mine who knows me well who read that book said to me later uh you were depressed as hell when you wrote this book weren't you and i said yeah i was and he says i could tell mm. uh, and there's a lot in it uh, again and just like wildfire drawing off a lot of stuff you know working through it allegorically through the characters of course um but again a lot of stuff you want to talk again about a lot of stuff being poured from personal life into manuscript, Warpath is another one. In fact, that would be a good double feature for that, Wildfire and Warpath. Well, uh, we will be covering it soon, so I 
we'll probably email you and, and uh, invite you to come back and talk about Warpath because that would be fantastic. That would be so my absolutely, pleasure. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you so much, David. Uh, again, I really appreciate it. We never take for granted the relationship that we have with the authors here. And honestly, it's you guys that make this show. Um, and I didn't know if you knew, but uh, Literary Trex has been nominated for a, a Parsec Award and we're a finalist. Congrats. That's um, fantastic. And I... Yeah, and I think it's honestly because um, all of the the material that we sent them from the show was all interviews of authors. So <laughs> that's great. You stuff. know, uh, we did that's I, right. Did we did just I, give I them the good the stuff. Of your sample packet. Um, we hadn't interviewed you it. when it was Dan and I. <laughs> um, but it was you'd be very pleased. It was uh, Una McCormick oh, who great. made the cut. Um, it was uh, Larry Nemechek was on. Always um, entertaining. Larry's then, fantastic. Um. Mm-hmm. And then it was, I think it was Greg Cox who oh, was on as well, well. Yeah, Greg. Greg's just a. It was either him or John Jackson Miller. I can't, I can't remember right now. Well, I mean, yeah, John, John Jackson Miller and Greg Cox, both just wonderful, warm, terrific human beings. Both great guys. Uh, can't go wrong with either one of them, either when writing a book or looking for a guest. Well, thank you, David, and I hope that uh, you will have a great night and much success with your new work that's coming out that we will very much be looking forward to and have to cover in some manner here on Trek FM with some of our other shows. (laughs) Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And I, I wish you guys the best of luck and I hope you bring home that Parsec award. Wow, Matthew, I can't, I can't really say enough for how awesome that conversation with David Mack was. Uh, I, that was amazing. I, I had a blast. I mean, really, truly that was just so much fun. And it's just the most rewarding thing about doing this show is is talking to the authors, um, getting them to to answer the questions. And, and I really love that David got very personal tonight, talking mm-hmm. about what these characters mean to him, uh, what parts of him are in these characters. I think that that's just... One of the most special things that can happen is 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 really kind of understanding where an author is coming from. So my hat is off to David Mack for being so open to talk about some things that, you know, not everybody would maybe want to talk about. Um, because, again, when you're talking about pouring yourself into your creation, that is a very personal process. Mm. And um, there might be some things you don't want to share, but... David's very open with us, and I just I always appreciate all of the authors. And I again I I say this a lot on the show. It's you guys who make this possible. Um, one, it's your books, and two, it's your support of literary treks. And we never take that for granted here. And we just want to say thank you. Definitely, it's it's always a special treat, and especially when these conversations, you know, go in directions you never expect they would. Uh, it's it's really a pleasure and really something special that we get to do here on the show. It really is. Uh, and we appreciate all of you listening. Uh, you know that uh, if you are an Apple user, you can find us at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. We are a feature provider there of auditory entertainment known as podcasts, which we're very excited to be. Uh, you can do a few things to help us out. We'd love to get some more ratings and reviews from you um so we'd really appreciate it if you're an apple user go to itunes.com slash trek fm click on literary treks give us a star rating and review let us know what you think of the show and help us move up in those itunes ratings guys if you're not an apple user you know that we're everywhere 
Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone. And of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from the website and grab the RSS link as well. If you do like the content that you get on Literary Treks and through Trek FM, we really hope that you'll visit patreon.com slash trekfm and find out the ways that you can help bring all of this to all the listeners each week. We are a listener-supported network, and it's really through you and your support that you're enabling us to continue to keep the auditory content to the level that you expect from Trek FM and be able to to allow us to keep bringing it to you. And we have a passion, Dan and I do, obviously, for these Star Trek books and comics and getting to discuss them with the authors, and we hope that you do too. Visit us at patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see the current goals we're trying to reach as a network. There's different milestone contribution levels, and of course, uh, you can get some great perks. Uh, We've got the Patreon roundtable these days going on with Will Wynn, where uh, the listeners themselves that are at a certain level get to come on and basically do a podcast every month. It's so much fun. I've loved listening to that. You can get exclusive content, seats on the content development team, and so much more. Again, just check everything out at patreon.com slash trekfm. And thank you so much for your support of Literary Treks and the network like to thank our associate producers who do keep this show coming to you each week because of Patreon, and that's Will Wynn and Ken Tripp. These guys are amazing. Really appreciate their help. Of course, we've got our executive producers, Norman C. Lau and C. Ryan Jones. It's great to be able to help steer this network with them, and uh, I'm just honored to be uh, with them in this process. Now, Dan, when you're not sunning yourself on top of the Sagittarius with uh, Alucci, uh, where can we find you? Well, you know, uh, we're not exactly always following strict rules of uh, putting on sunscreen up there and it can get a little dangerous, but uh, we do our best. Uh, you can find me online, my uh, review website where I talk about Star Trek novels, both old and new, is www.treklit.com. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekletreviews. And I'm also on Twitter at trekletreviews and my personal Twitter feed at kertrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. And you can always find me on the Babel Conference as well. And Matthew, when you're not trying to score big in an alien casino where the laws of probability might just be tipped in your favor, where can we find you? Well... You can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me on Instagram at MRushing. You can find me doing The Orb with Christopher Jones talking exclusively about Deep Space Nine. I'm on the 602 Club talking about a great new geeky topic each week. Uh, Something classic, something new, something just in theaters. I'm trying to introduce people maybe to something they haven't heard before. Uh, we had a great time this last week. Had John Champion from Mission Log. We talked about The Man from Uncle. And let me give you a hint go see The Man from Uncle. So that's really fun. And you can also find me on my own personal blog at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.